Let's pray. Lord, as we come to consider something that distresses me greatly, and that is the common concept of God, if there is one at all, and how do we address that? I ask that your spirit would speak to us each and every one. Not through my words, but through the words of scripture. Amen. I've titled this sermon with a, a question. What is your concept of God? Now, it deserves some explanation of how I came up with this question or why it is so pertinent to me anyway. Well, it arises because of a conversation I overheard. And the conversation went along the lines that the concept of God was something like this, and this is my paraphrase. God is the name we give to an elemental force that is behind everything. Now this struck me as along the lines of Stephen Hawkins' uh, unifying force. This is a concept in theoretical physics that there must be a unifying force behind magnetic, gravitational and electrical forces. It's basically what Hawkins spent a great deal of his life on. And Hawkins commented, if we can understand that, we will know the mind of God. Now you need to understand that Hawkins was the guy who said, the evidence for a creative mind behind the universe is almost overwhelming. But he also said that he did not believe in such a thing as a conscious creative mind act. The conversation that I overheard continued towards some sort of amorphous body or pool of something out of which real things with real shape had come. Now these are non-religious people, adherents to no religion. And that made me wonder what is the prevalent concept of God in Western society, not just in Western society, really throughout the world, and is there some commonality of concept? Well, I quickly decided that that question is far too big for me to tackle. So I reduced it to what do the people around me think of God? How do they conceptualise God? That is, if they believe in God at all. Now, I asked one of my staff, a non-religious individual, who astounded me by saying that she believed in God, but at the same time, she could give me no concept of God. She had absolutely no idea. Now, that astounded me because... How can you believe in something you have no idea about? 
that you have no concept of. If you have no concept of it, surely it doesn't exist to you at all. <laughs> so what in fact does, does this mean? What, what, is, what is behind this? And I hypothesize that what she's really saying is that she believes in a creator. There was something, a god or god, that created in the beginning. But that is as far as the concept goes because God is so far removed, so distant, that we cannot have any concept of God. We cannot know God. He is impersonal. He is imperceivable, he is inscrutable, he is impenetrable. And possibly, even probably, God is disinterested. And certainly never thought of because God is essentially irrelevant. Now this is interesting. God is never thought of. He is irrelevant. Now, I discovered that nothing focuses the mind quite like the image of our own mortality. People, as they are approaching the end of their life, actually start to think about God. They start to think about the future, what happens after death. Especially when it's imminent. Some years ago, I had a staff member in this situation. Like Catherine, she had cancer. It was right through her body. And it probably started with lung cancer because of her smoking habit. She had a view of what happened at death. She had this view that there was some part of us that was immortal, what we might call the soul, I guess. And as she saw it, this soul would pass back to some amorphous blob from which it came to be swallowed up and dispersed back into the hole. The person was lost, submerged in the greater picture of the whole. There was no clear picture of what this amorphous blob was. Is it a life form? Is it a soul force? Is it a mega spirit or mega spirit or whatever? There was no real idea about it. Now, I have difficulty grasping these rather indistinct ideas and so cannot really explain them, but then again, the people in whom they originated had a similar problem. I wonder and feel concern for how common these ideas or lack of ideas about God are. And from my interaction with the world, I think they are exceedingly common. Even amongst people who believe there is a God. I would like you to listen to a, a rendition of, of a public discussion between half a dozen intellectuals. This was published 
both Christian and non-Christian, they included Jordan Peterson, who I've spoken of before, about the importance of God and our understanding of God. One of these gentlemen passed this remark. As much as I believe in God, and I truly do, I have never found that arguments for God's existence are nearly as effective or as important as arguments for God's necessity. No God, chaos. If you don't believe in God, then at least understand what the consequence of that disbelief are. Robert Louis Stevenson, I, I think it was Robert Louis Stevenson, made the comment that no nation can survive the loss of its God. Stevenson was at best a nominal Christian, what perhaps you could call a cultural Christian. He drew up, grew up in a Christian culture and had Christian views about God, but he had no personal commitment. But he could still say, no nation can survive the loss of its God. A startling comment coming from that background. Billy Graham passed a comment on the way the US was heading. I'll read the greater part of it. The greatest city on earth for close to a thousand years, the dominant power of the world, a city of 1.5 million and the capital of the mightiest empire the world had known, was built on seven hills. That was Rome. Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire lists five contributing factors in its disintegration. The undermining of the home, the craze for pleasure, building gigantic armaments when the real enemy was within, the decadence of the people, and the decay of religion. Now by this time Rome was at least nominally Christian, although essentially it was still pagan. What had happened is a hundred years before the fall of Rome, Constantine came along, he became a Christian, um, because Christianity had become the, the, the dominant reforming religion within the Roman Empire and was a large reason why the Roman Empire had continued for so long. It could have fallen over 200 years earlier but the rise of Christianity had brought people back He came along and he shifted his capital to Constantinople, what we now call Istanbul. The Roman Empire, effectively at the fall of Rome, was split in two. So the Western Roman Empire, which was centred on Rome, fell. The Eastern Empire, which was predominantly Christian, very much predominantly Christian, continued for another thousand years. But it was gradually eaten away and eventually fell to the Ottoman Turks. Anyway, Billy Graham 
writes about the fall of Rome. That which was the contributing cause of the downfall of the great nations of the past entered the core of the Roman way of life until in AD 410 Rome fell without a battle. Where was her mighty legions, strong shields and bucklers, and her mighty generals? They were powerless under the grip of the dread disease of sin. The foundations that had made her strong had been eaten by cancerous sin. Our greatest enemy is the internal decadence that is causing us to rush faster than any civilization before us towards destruction and hell. As a result, Today's young people are coming out of our education system either as sceptics, agnostics or atheists with little or no regard for God. A US governor declared some years ago our country is sick because it has forgotten God. Democracy can be saved only by the spiritual strength God gives to his people and spiritual life is needed today as it has never been needed before. Billy Graham adds, and this sounds remarkably like Stevenson, no nation which relegates the Bible to the background, which disregards the love of God and flouts his claims, can long survive. Then he quotes Job 12 verse 23. God makes nations great and destroys them. And then he quotes the psalmist, who also records God's promise. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's Psalm 33, verse 12. Continuing with the discussion between the, tw the six or seven intellectuals, this comment was made. The number of people who believe in God and that God is meaningless is enormous. For most moderns, God is a celestial butler. Here, God, is my list of what I would like you to do for me. Have a great day. And that's about the extent of most people's thoughts or communications about God. The gentleman who said this then went on to say, in all seriousness, I am infinitely more interested in what God wants from me than what I want from God. And that's the way I portray it to people and they are moved by that because they know God is not a celestial butler in their hearts. The number of people who pray for their dying child and then the child still dies, well, everybody knows that that's the case. God is not there to provide your wish list. So much for the way the world at large views God. Or rather, doesn't view God. So I then thought, well, what do Christians think of God? 
Now, my sample is actually very small, but it's interesting. On Friday, I was speaking to a, a businessman in Singapore. He's a Christian. And I asked him the same question. What is your concept of God? And this was his answer, paraphrased somewhat, because he went on for quite a bit. <laughs> but it basically came down to, God is all present, all concerned, and interested in me. And in everyone around me. And in everyone in the world. He's like a father with his concern for the individual and the individual's development. He's very intimate, very close. I can talk to him anywhere, at any time, and completely without restraint. Completely without restraint. That actually made me think of a t-shirt. Now, I don't often think about t-shirts, but this one had something rather interesting written on it, and in some sense funny. Sometimes talking to my sister removes the need for a therapist. And then underneath it, it said, Sometimes, after talking to my sister, I need a therapist. <laughs> the point here is that in talking with God, I, th I think the point that was being made, in talking with God, my thinking gets reshaped. And the need for therapy disappears. It's a very real experience. One of my engineering staff recently immigrated to New Zealand from the US. He's a Christian, as is his wife. His response to what is your concept of God was someone who wants to see me develop. Now, I found this really, really startling because both these men actually had this concept that God was interested in my development. And inherent in that is the concept that God is close, which was better expressed by the, the Singaporean. It's interesting, but it, because it's so far removed from the general worldview that God is not present, that he's so far removed that he's meaningless, that he has no relevance. So then I went on. What does scripture say? 
Well, the very first verse of scripture reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, the word for God used here is Elohim. Now, I'm no expert in ancient Hebrew. However, I have done some reading. Elohim is actually a plural form of another word, and I'm looking at the time. Uh, El, or Eloah. Eloah is used fairly frequently in Scripture. In Nehemiah 9, verse 17, there is this verse, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and applied and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God, that is the L, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abiding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Now Nehemiah is talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt. Now the Israelites experienced the presence of God in a very real way. The cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. They knew God was present. But they still didn't want to follow him whenever things got tough. Well, Eloah means God, mighty, strong, prominent, preeminent. There is a very similar uh, name for job for, for, for God um, that Jacob uses when he's blessing. Joseph, and that is El Shaddai, which is possibly a name you've heard, which simply means ultimate power. So in Genesis 49.22, as Jacob is giving his blessing to Joseph, he says, but his bow remained steady, his strong arms stayed limber because of the mighty one of Jacob. And that is how El Shaddai is, is translated in our Bible, the mighty one of Jacob, but it simply means ultimate power of Jacob. And then it goes on, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the foundation stone of Israel. That's what is meant by the rock of Israel. The shepherd is interesting. Then, of course, there's Yahweh Jireh, or Jehovah Jireh, as perhaps we're more familiar with it. Um, I think in the 70s, most of us are probably old enough to remember scripture and song. Do anybody remember? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. His grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Well, that's what Jehovah Jireh means. It means... The Lord will provide. 
It's the name Abraham gave to the place where God provided the ram for the sacrifice. It was a revelation that was granted to Abraham as a result of that experience that God actually provided. The song goes on, My Lord shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory, not my wants. There is a truly significant difference. Anyway, that was a revelation of God that Abraham actually commemorates, actually, in a sense, builds a memorial to by naming the place the Lord will provide. The Lord your healer, Exodus 15.23. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And one of the more interesting ones is the Lord who sanctifies Leviticus 20, verse 8. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Yahweh Mikadesh. The Lord who sanctifies. Now this is interesting because it's right in the middle of the book of Leviticus and it's effectively saying the law and keeping the law does not make you holy. Only God does. That's actually looking forward to Christ, isn't it? It's kind of funny that it comes right in the book of the law, saying that the law is actually useless for doing anything really practical for you. I'm going to skip a whole lot. Perhaps the most significant one of all is what's represented by YHWH, what we commonly refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah, was the name that the Israelites used for God but would never spell it completely because that was thought to be a dangerous act because it represented so much the holiness and the power and the might and the whole character of God. It is the only, in a sense, true name, complete name of God. Hear, O Israel, this is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The word used here, is Yahweh. Then it goes on, you shall love the Lord, that's Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Daniel 9.14 also uses the word, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has and has brought it upon us, 
for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he does, and we have not obeyed his voice. Do you see the theme here? This is the name that deserves the ultimate reverence because of his holiness. But it also implies quite a lot more. It also has a feeling of presence and of existence, like I am. Psalm 107, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say this. And then in verse 13 of the same psalm, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Yahweh is associated with deliverance. Again, this is a a precursor, in a sense, to Christ. Then in Psalm 25, verse 10 and 11, all the ways of the Lord, all the ways of Yahweh, are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, Forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Already there is the sense of a God who is forgiving, who is gracious. Then in Psalm 31, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and so it goes on. But here again, there is in this psalm the idea of Yahweh as the protector, the deliverer, and the guider. The verse finishes, For the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Now, a guide has to be present. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, perhaps the best known of them all. The same idea is present. The shepherd protects and guides the sheep, but he also owns them, generally, or he works for someone who owns them. But in those days, he was present with the sheep, always. And what's important is he experienced all the inconveniences of weather that the sheep experienced, because he was out there with them. Then jumping forward to Matthew, Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be, with shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is the last one I want to touch on, because I think it is the most important message that we have to get across this Christmas. God is not distant. He is present. And he's not just present, but he experiences with us as the shepherd experiences with the sheep. 
And Christ's coming is the ultimate expression of God being with us and experiencing with us what we experience. Let's pray. Lord, as we come into this festive season that is called Christmas, we grieve that Christ has been lost from Christmas to the vast majority of our society. Lord, help us in our interactions with our community to express the presence of God and the peace that your presence brings. Amen. Amen.